Well, if you would open your word this morning to Ephesians chapter 3, that will be the first stop on our tour this morning. We are returning to a little bit of a mini-series that we started in the beginning of the month that came out of the end of our study of the Gospel of John. And the title of the little series was The Passion of the Shepherd and the Purpose of the Flock. And we find that, remember, Jesus, Jesus left last words to Peter. He imparted something to Paul that gives away the passion that God has. And, and listen, I, I know this. I had a conversation with a young guy the other day. He's not in the church, just somebody I was talking to. And, uh, and he was asking me about, you know, how, how, do you, how do you make God the center of your life? I mean, what, what does that really mean? And I think all of us wrestle with the reality, even if we've been saved for many years, of God being the center, of the things that burn in the heart of God being the things that burn in my heart. Right? We get busy, we get distracted, there's a lot of possibilities of things to pursue in our lives. And then you start asking the question, well, what really is God passionate about? And sometimes we want God to be passionate about what we're passionate about, and so we kind of start to work that end of the deal. Well, if we go to Scripture, we find out that there is a passion in God for his people. You know, when Jesus restores Peter, Peter, do you love me? This restoration moment in the Apostle Peter's life. Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, well, feed my sheep. That was the passion. Take care of this. This issue, Peter, to me is of huge importance. Make sure my sheep are cared for and they are shepherded. And Peter talks about that later in his own ministry. Paul will bring that up. Paul has his last words with the elders of Ephesus, and he gathers them to himself as he's on his way traveling through that area. For the last time, he's going to be with them. And his charge to them is that they would shepherd the church. He warns them there's going to be danger coming from within the church. Men are going to rise up speaking perverse things, but you shepherd the church. And so you can see that the apostles of the New Testament caught a vision from Christ, that his church matters to him immensely. Now, obviously, if that matters to the one whom we love the most, then it will matter to us as well, and it should. But how does it matter? How does it take on form? There's a passion of the shepherd, but then there's purpose in the flock. You know, I remember reading this quote to you where uh, I think Mark Driscoll had surveyed a number of his pastor friends and asked them, you know, what's the purpose for the church? And, and he shares in his book about how amazed he was how so few had a clear statement of that. You know, what's the purpose of the church? Well, you and I spend a great deal of time in the church. It's an aspect of our lives. What's the purpose of the church? I think if I had to grab a passage that helped me frame a, a brief answer, it could be a very broad answer, but I, I think I would, I would grab the statement that the Apostle Peter made in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are, but why are we that? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And, you know, calling out of darkness into light, that, that's, that's what Jesus took up when the apostle Paul was called to be an apostle, when he was called to Christ. He says, I'm rescuing from the people I'm going to send you to and from your own people that you might open their eyes, that they might escape darkness and come into the light. So this same passion resonated in the Apostle Peter that what are we about? What's the purpose for the flock? Well, in in Ephesians chapter 3, you get the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting, especially in light of what I'm going to talk about today, that the Apostle Peter was known as the Apostle to the Jews. The Bible actually calls him that. The Apostle Paul designated in Scripture as the Apostle to the Gentiles. That's very important as to where we're going today. But both of them had the same mission statement and purpose for the church. Peter made it a proclamation of God's excellencies. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, this gift of apostleship was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, listen. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God's manifold witness might be made known. I believe it's just another way that the Apostle Peter said the church is a proclaimer of the excellency of God. The Apostle Paul saying the church is the proclaimer of the manifold wisdom of God. So, so what is the purpose of the flock? Well, the flock, are, we are the proclaimers of the excellency of God. You know, that's a, that's a great thing to keep in mind when you start shopping for a purpose statement for your own life. You know, why am I here? Right, at some point, everything in your life hinges upon whether or not you have a, a meaning and a purpose for your life. Things fall apart. A relationship goes bad. You lose lots of money. A, a, a job uh, turns into something you didn't anticipate. You start asking questions, you know, does my life matter? Why am I even here? That's a good question. That's a good question to answer before any of those things happen. Why am I even here? Well, you're here to be redeemed into the household of God so that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, now that's not just some big generic statement, right? When you, when you look here in Ephesians, and Paul is building up to this, he hits a point in chapter 4 where it's almost as though, okay, that sounds great, Paul. We're You've been given this ministry and you're preaching to the Gentiles the gospel of God and that's the mission you're on, to have the gospel resonating in the people of God. But, and then we're, we're supposed to make known this God and these manifold wisdom of his. Can, can, you, can you be more specific than that though, Paul? Now, what does that look like on a daily basis? Well, in chapter 4, that's where he goes. I therefore, prisoner, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this call. So there is a call, and then there's a way to go about doing it. And he begins to explain that. He goes into relational dynamics immediate there in chapter 4. Chapter 5, he goes again through what it looks like for us to walk in love with each other. He gets into some specifics. He talks about how wives and husbands 
are to proclaim the excellency of God. He moves next into parents and children, how they're to proclaim the excellencies of God. He moves to slaves and slave owners, how they're to proclaim the excellency of God. He moves in chapter 6 into this dynamic of spiritual warfare, that we live in a world that is hostile to God and that is governed by spiritual principalities that are against God. And we are to live in that setting in a way that proclaims even to them the excellencies of God. So there's all these specifics of a proclamation of the excellencies of God. So that's why we are a church. That's why we exist. The church's purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of God. And, you know, when I get a hold of that, it might answer a lot of tough questions for me. Because it may be that the best spot, if you will, to proclaim the excellencies of God might not be the most comfortable spot. It might not be the easiest spot. It might not be the safest spot. But see, if I lose track of why the church exists, then my prayers and my activity and my time and my money all begin to be used to attain comfort, ease, safety. My relational dynamics get defined by that. If this is an uncomfortable relationship, well, then I'll just stay away from that. I'll move to something that's more comfortable. But listen, we're not called as the people of God to find comfort and ease and safety. And sometimes when we come into the kingdom of God, it's almost as though that's what we expect God to do and that's what he should do. And we pray and begin to ask and believe and have huge faith about comfort and ease and safety coming into our lives. But we misread something here because the purpose for the flock was to proclaim the excellencies of him. And sometimes the place of greatest proclamation for us is a place of great difficulty, great discomfort, failure, fearful settings, scary moments in our lives where our trust in God proclaims the excellency of God. How we look to him when everything looks like it can't work right, but yet we look to him and we have peace. That proclaims the excellency of him. You know, quite often as Christians, we're waiting to proclaim the excellencies of our circumstances, and then we'll also tag God as creating it. God, thank you for giving me favorable circumstances. This is great. What do you mean is great? The circumstances, they're great. Oh, you remember I was telling you about this was happening, that was happening? What's well, not happening anymore? And we're all excited, and that's great. And we proclaim the excellencies of changed circumstances. That's very different than standing in the face of intimidating circumstances, failing circumstances, weak circumstances, and proclaiming our trust in God and our peace and our joy in him. See, that's all over the issues of God's excellence in those moments. It's much harder, but it's what we're called to. So I want to focus today there just in a few verses in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just begin in verse 1. Here's kind of the focal point of where I want to go. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that word unity there, it's the Greek word hinotes, and it comes from the word one in the Greek. So it's kind of like uno and unity for us. There's, there's a relationship there. So it's as though when he says, be eager for the unity of the spirit, then he begins to use the word one. Watch this over and over and over again, seven times. Why do we maintain this unity of the spirit? Well, here's why. Because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now that's a mouthful of huge theological terms, but what Paul's imposing on the Ephesians is the reason why you and I have unity. We walk in this oneness Because God has given us one common thing between all of us. No matter what background we come from, no matter what our age is, no matter what our gender is, we walk in unity because of these things that we share in common. There is one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one Christ. You know, it's not as though there's the the older generation's Savior and the younger generation's Savior. There's not a, a, a male heaven and a female heaven. There's not a a hope for the white people and a hope for the black people. There's one. And we all share it together in the household of God. And our walk is to reflect that because it's a walk of unity. Now, let me play with these words unity and disunity for a moment. Unity, oneness. These are just some homemade definitions for you. Unity is about harmony or agreement for a common purpose. It is many things devoted to and oriented about one thing, many things that all participate in one thing. It is being centered on one thing, right? It may be that there are, you know, this might go back to my orbiting illustration. It may be that there's many planets in orbit, but there's one center and they all face that center, And they may be doing many things, but they all travel around that one center. Their existence is oriented around that center. And we all share it, the same one center. You may be orbiting here and somebody else here, but we're all facing the one center. And the purpose and existence of our lives is about the same exact point in the universe. That's unity. So a real simple definition for disunity is when there's more than one center. The moment there becomes more than one center, you've entered into disunity. Right? If the center of the church's existence is here and my orbit is right here, there's going to be times when my back is to the center and I am in disunity with everybody else who's facing there because I'm about this right now. I'm not about that. I'm about this. And in that moment, you and I cannot walk in unity and we will not walk. In unity, because I'm not about the same thing. Now, I want to focus the message today, but let me just make this real in a number of categories here, because in Ephesians, there would be a number of categories that would come to play. 
This unity and disunity is, is, a, is a matter for anything that's relational for us. So the obvious category is like our marriage to one another. When we're married, husbands and wives, there can be disunity in marriage and there can be unity in marriage. Disunity in marriage is a condition where there is more than one center or purpose in the relationship. Disunity is centered perhaps in the preferences of the husband or the preferences of the wife. Listen, a lot of times things that are going on that are sources of conflict have to do with what I want. You know, not that I came down from the mountain, got from God something etched in stone, and this is absolutely the only way that this can be done. No, quite often conflict between husbands and wives is just about, that's not how I want to do it. I don't like it being done that way. That's not my preference. So if we're not both husbands and wives orbiting around the same center, well, then at some point, I got my own orbit going. No matter what my wife's orbit is about, I got my own orbit going on. You can orbit and make the center of your marriage about your traditions that you grew up with. You come to marriage now, people get married later and later in life, and so... Typically, I think, you know, 28 or 29 is about the average age of getting married. You've got a lot of traditions get built up over those years. There are things that you're used to doing a certain way. You may have been single for a while. You may have come from a t- particular family, and your family traditions are very different than this other person's family traditions. And so you come in, and if you're orbiting around your personal traditions when you come into the marriage, and the other person's orbiting, well, you're not going to have unity. You're not going to walk together effectively. I've heard more and more in our society that's geared more and more towards the pursuit of happiness uh, of dislodging the center of marriage as God defined it into personal happiness. Am I happy in my relationship with my spouse? And so the orbit is about personal happiness. The only problem with that is there's two persons involved in a marriage. My wife was telling me about an article she had read the other day where this couple comes to a biblical counselor for marriage advice, and they explain just how their marriage has fallen to pieces and how bad things are going and uh, how irreconcilable things are between them, and they've, they've come to the place, and they're doing kind of a sell job here to the counselor. They come to the place where the only thing they can, they can do is, is part ways. And the counselor listens, and he turns to them, and he says, yeah, your situation is very, very discouraging and very serious. I guess, uh, I guess the only thing that, that's left for you to do, and they're, they're ready for him to release them. He says, the only thing that's left for you to do is to learn to love each other. <laughs> wow. Really? Yeah, Really? You know, I don't know quite how that describes how God feels toward us, but there there was not an easy natural affinity for God's love toward us. That that is a love that he imparts to us. It's not one that we draw out of him. So in a way, I don't know that God learns anything, but, you know, he, he came into this love dynamic with us. And it wasn't an easy thing. And it may not be an easy thing in a marriage, But if it's about personal happiness, then 
it's going to have more than one center and it's not going to be unified. Rather than realizing that my marriage exists to proclaim the glory of God. That's the center for me and that's the center for my wife. And we orbit around the same spot. My marriage exists to proclaim the excellencies of God. Well, this can be true in gender relationships, you know. Disunity in gender is a condition where there is more than one center or purpose in male and female distinctions. And we've, some of them have lived through the 60s and 70s, the uh, radical new thoughts, the move of feminism, male chauvinism, the, it, it, the celebration that I'm not you. <laughs> I am woman, hear me roar, or man walking around feeling like I'm superior in some way because of some dynamic that's true of me and not true of you. And so we get this idea, we'll step on the other gender, we'll belittle the other gender, we'll make moronish the other gender, depending on what show you're watching. But what that does is it dislocates the sinner. It puts the sinner in being a man or the sinner in being a woman. But... but God made one center when he made distinctions of male and female. Let us make man in our own image, Genesis 1 says. And it goes on and says, in the image of God, God made male and female. Really? So, so it, it took the distinction of male and female to bring the image of God into the earth. Yes, that's exactly what God did. So when you stand as a man and do this to a woman, or you stand as a woman and do that to men, you stomp on the glory of God in that person. And then disunity occurs because there's more than one center. The church can be disunified. Right? When the purpose for this gathering gets two centers, gets more than one purpose about it, it can be disunified. Listen, we all have personal desires and personal feelings. We come into a setting like this, and it's very easy at some point, maybe early on, maybe later, for us to orient the church around us. We put the church center about us. How does the church make me feel? Do I feel befriended? Do I feel validated? Do I feel significant? And so we've made that. Now, you can imagine if, if any of us go down that road, we could have 700 centers going on. But there's only one center. We don't get to make our own preferences the center. You know, some of us have a preference for worship styles. We can make that the center. Uh, some have a preference for the dynamic of the church as to how evangelistic it is. We can make that the center. Some have a uh, preference for whether there's enough emphasis in a certain category of doctrine that, that isn't the center. Right? F family is a hugely important topic in Scripture. But you do realize it's not the center of Scripture. And we can make that the center. And so if you don't agree with this particular view, right, and listen, you know, family is a, a near and dear subject to me. If you guys have been here for years, you know I've said a lot about it, and I, and I have a big family. Um, we homeschool our kids. Neither one of those things would be the center about which anybody should be orbiting. But I have watched this dynamic take place. I've watched the level of unity and fellowship for those who have a big vision for family can be big with those who have a big vision for family. But if you don't, I kind of can't connect with you. 
or homeschooling. I've watched people who have a vision for homeschooling be able to come together greatly, but not be able to come together with others because others don't share that same vision. Listen, that's not the center. If you're a Christian, whether you homeschool or have a small family or a big family and don't place a a great deal of emphasis there, you and I have something much greater in common. That one list, none of those things were on that one list through which we were to be unified, which means it allows for some variety. And you know, listen, all of us, if we're really honest, and today hopefully I'll get to your category if I haven't already, there's a category that you don't like variety in. You don't like people different than you in that category. You got a view, and man, if somebody else has got a different view on that thing, they're just wrong. It's just wrong, and, you, and I don't even know how to get around them kind of a thing. Right? That's true in some category. Well, let me, let me focus today on racial unity and disunity because I think we need to say more about that in this church. And quite honestly, it is very much the context for what we're reading. Racial disunity is a condition where there is more than one center or purpose in our God-ordained diversity. Races, cultures have in them a God-ordained diversity. There's a God-ordination in the fact that not all of our skin color is the same. God has ordained that diversity. What we have done with it is we have taken the distinctions and built a center around them. There's a white center, and there's a black center. In some places of the country here, there's a Latino center. There's an Asian center. We've made race the issue around which we rally and we orbit and the definition for our life and our identity is bound up in what color we are or what culture we've come from. This unity in races is centered on man's natural history versus his spiritual history. When you walk in, maybe even into a church like this, when you walk into the Winn-Dixie, when you walk into a workplace, when you walk on the street, and you see somebody of a different color, especially, though, when you walk into the church, what history do you travel into in that moment? Do you see them as Europeans? They're white. They're European background. We're similar. Or do do you see them as African, black, Is that where your mind goes? And immediately, when your mind goes there, you inherit the history that goes with that? Parts of the history that you've chosen to hold on to and that have formed your view and your opinion of another race? Or do you go into biblical categories? You see, there is, I'm going to steal one of Peter's lines here, there is racism in the Bible. (laughs) I knew he would say that. There's racism in the Bible. But there's only two races in the Bible. There's the race of Adam and the race of Christ. And everybody is in one of those two categories. So when you walk into this room on a Sunday morning, you see black, white, brown. What what do you see? 
Or do you see the race of Adam or the race of Christ? Because if you're in Christ and somebody of a different color or background is in Christ as well, you have more in common with that person than you do of somebody who's got natural background just like yours. Me and Rufus, I know you can't see the family resemblance, but, but it, it's there if you look really, really hard. <laughs> Stand up, Rufus. Some people can't see you. It's Rufus. Now, let me, let me say this, and I say this with a huge amount of sobriety, because I have questions about the eternal condition of my own parents' soul. I hope that there is hope in what I don't know. But based on what I do know, I have more in common with Rufus than I do with my own dad. What Rufus and I share is going into eternity forever. All those ones, the one body, the one Lord, the one baptism, the one hope, the one heaven, the one God and Father of us all, we share that. There's not any deeper categories in my life. My skin color, I didn't even choose it. Just kind of default setting. Here, boom, here you are. You get to be this. You get to be this temporarily, and then you're going to put on some kind of a glorified body, which I have no idea what that's going to look like. Maybe I'm going to look just like Rufus, and he's going to look just like me in that day. <laughs> but spiritually, the reality of our lives is that he and I have more in common. Do you see people that way? Because that's true. The church has to be informed by those dynamics. There are these allegiances that, and loyalties that get built up in us as though, as though we owe our race some kind of an allegiance. If you grew up in the South, you've gotten around white allegiances and white supremacy and white ideas and white ways of life. And your family had things to say about people of other races. And there's this sense of, of loyalty that's in you. If you grew up black, you don't escape a sense of loyalty that's in you, as though you're called to be loyal to your own race. Can I invite everybody here to be prepared the same way that you broke your ties with the world? To be prepared to break ties with your race. I'm not called to have an allegiance to being white. I'm called to an allegiance to Christ and to the gospel. If you're black... Latino, Asian, you're not called to have an allegiance to that. You're called to an allegiance to Christ and to his mission to proclaim his excellencies no matter what color you are. Racism, racism is a form of boasting. That's what it is. When I start believing that what makes me distinct from you is the ground upon which I'm better than you, 
That's boasting. It's boasting in the natural dimensions of this world. You, you want to read the Bible real quickly on boasting and see what God has to say about boasting? It's the, it's the one thing God violently stomps on. Well, no, more than one thing, but it's one of the things. Because boasting is about pride. If you want to boast, the Bible says, let your boast be in this. Boast in me. God says, if you're going to boast, boast in the fact that you understand and know me. That's what he says. Any other boasting is pride because it's not located in God. Because if you're boasting in God, God made black, God made white, yellow, brown, red. God made all those. You want to boast in God? Be glad that we're different. And celebrate that fact somehow because God did that intentionally to show forth his excellencies. See, this this dynamic is affecting the church's ability to show forth the glory of God. ABC News had a program called Segregated Sundays. They they say Martin Luther King Jr. once said 11 a.m. Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. Now, 40 years after King's murder, only 7% of America's churches are considered racially mixed. 7%? In the body of Christ? Are you kidding me? I don't know what qualifies for racially mixed. I don't know whether what percentages need to be there. I don't know how they work that formula. But if we're all honest, this would be obnoxiously true. And we would not score well. You want to look around, make sure? Remember... Uh, flying back from some conference just after Katrina. Peter and I were sitting together on the plane. Behind us was the former police chief for New Orleans and a friend. And they were having a conversation, and we got into a conversation with them, and eventually they figured out that we were pastors, to which they asked a question. And it was a little bit of a teasing question. They were kind of teasing us when they asked this question. So, uh, so how many black people you got in your church? And I don't know if he was ready for the response. I said, not enough. Way too few. I said, we would have a handful, but we wouldn't have many. So I think he thought he got me until I asked him, so how many white people you got in your church? <laughs> to which he leaned to his friend and he just kind of went, oh, <laughs> he got me, man. Because <laughs> he said, we got zero. And this is the body of Christ. Why, you know, why is the natural current of the world so clearly on display in the church? See, this would be an issue that you don't pay attention to things, you become like the world. All right, we're not paying attention to this, right? We just grew up. Next thing you know, boom, we just go to a church and we're here. And we're, things are a certain way. And we're just like the world. But yet in reality, we're nothing like the world. Paul said these huge things about what it is to be in Christ, those huge things govern our lives. But let me just make this statement. We didn't invent racism. It's not uniquely associated only with life in the South or even in America. There are racial tensions all over the world. 
And there are racial tensions in this passage. You go back to the Bible and to this time, this is a racially charged moment in the church because God is bringing together two races, Jew and Gentile, and that, that is not a happy marriage. You think black and white's got issues? Jew and Gentile had every issue we've got and more. Look at this quote. It says, as we approach the Christian era, the attitude of the Jews toward the Gentiles changes. It gets worse. Until we find in the New Testament times the most extreme aversion, scorn, and hatred. They were regarded as unclean. The Jews found the Gentiles to be unclean. If you touched them, you were defiled by them. What do you think that looked like? Separate bathroom facilities, maybe? Sound familiar? Segregation? Segregation is about avoidance. That's what it's about. You're not like me, and I, I feel the need to avoid you. Well, that, that's not unique to us. They were regarded as unclean, with whom it was unlawful to have any friendly intercourse. They were the enemies of God and his people, to whom the knowledge of God was denied unless they became proselytes. And even then, they could not, as in ancient times, be admitted to full fellowship. Jews were forbidden to counsel them. And if they asked about divine things, they were to be cursed. All children born of mixed marriages were bastards. That is what caused the Jews to be so hated by Greeks and Romans. Which, by the way, the Greeks and Romans had so terribly mistreated the Jews leading up to this time that they had stirred up racial tensions on the other side. McClintock and Strong say the Jews did not regard the Gentiles as brethren might not journey with them. I'm sure if they had buses, there would have been rules as to where you had to sit. Might not even save them when in peril of death. Because you know the old saying, right? The only good Gentile is a dead Gentile. Does this sound familiar? And held that they would all be destroyed and burned at the Messiah's coming. Strong called the relationship between these two races violent bigotry. It was actually a plaque that got excavated from Jerusalem. On the plaque, it was found near the temple site, that said, no man of another race is to enter within the fence in the enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as goyim. You fill in whatever derogatory term fits today. That was theirs the uncircumcised, the unclean. Do you remember the day when the Apostle Peter is compelled by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to a man's house, Cornelius? This is a huge day. This is the good news of God going into all of humanity, the way in which it was always designed to go. From the moment Abraham was called and made unique, it was so that he'd be a loudspeaker to the world, not a wall to keep them from coming in. And so there's a day that the Apostle Peter, who has to have a visitation from God, lowering the net from heaven to convince him to even go to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he goes and he returns to the leaders, to the leaders in the church in the book of Acts. 
and you're thinking, what a celebration. What are they going to ask him? Peter, how many were saved, right? Wouldn't you think that's the question? Do you know the first question they asked? Here's the first question. Acts chapter 11, verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? What? The gospel's just gone to the world. Aren't you excited? No. You went to that race. You went to them. They're unclean. How could you have even gone in their home? How could you have eaten with them? I mean, has somebody lost sight of something here? This is the background of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, here's, here's a correction for that. I'm going to fly through this as quickly as I can. Ephesians chapter 2, just preceding this, is a, a layout of the tensions that exist here. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul speaking, remember his ministry is to the Gentiles, so there would be a mixture of Jews in the midst. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. It's not a, that's not a flattering statement. That was a derogatory statement made by the Jews about believers who were uncircumcised. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was the condition, that's the condition of any heathen, any person who is apart from those whom God has given his promises to. So that's an accurate description. It's not a derogatory. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, every person in this room this morning who has become a Christian, who has been transferred out of the race of Adam into the race of Christ, you have a but now in your background. And that but now is more important than anything about your life leading up to this moment. Whether you're white or black or whatever. But now, whatever you are, but now you're in Christ. Along with the people who have different color than you do. You're with them in this oneness together. Now. See, here, here's the key to our unity. This is why it's, it's a key with a huge price. Because the key to our unity is the blood of Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, there's a celebration around the throne of God, of men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue. And the passage there says, who were purchased by the blood of Christ. Now, I, I don't know. I can't go back into the history and get into the minds of people who somehow gave skin color a lesser price, like it cost less for the Son of God to buy you if you were one color than it did if you were another. The person you may have been raised to disdain because they have a different color than you, it costs God the same blood to purchase them as it did you. They have no lesser value before God and you have none greater. The same price was paid. And it, it is our nearness to, to God 
that brings us near to one another. Right? This is a functional reality. In reality, we are, we are in Christ as one. That's the reality. The same blood flows through our spiritual veins. That's the reality. But in a functional sense, in the same sense that you can be married, and you really are married, and you're one flesh, but you can be way over here with one another, right? Functionally distant. But when there's one center, and you begin to move toward that one center, invariably you have to get closer to each other. So in a way, the only way for races to stay away from each other is for you to stay away from God. You got racism going on in your heart? You got a God problem. Because there ain't no way you're getting real close to God and feeling that way about somebody that he spent the blood of his son on. You get close to God, your value system's going to get wrecked. You're going to get introduced to the passion of God for somebody who's different than you. And it might change your opinion of how important those differences are once God has spoken clearly about how he feels about them. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, there's a, there's a bit of a double meaning here in this passage. Because on the one hand, you know what God's ultimately talking about here? Is the dividing wall of sin that separated us from God. Right? Do you remember that? Oh, listen, if God ever had a moment where he decided to be a racist, you and I are done. Because he, as God race, and us as Adam race, we're enemies of God, right? That's what the Bible says. And there was a wall of separation between us. It was a wall of sinful hostility. Hostility in the sense that we treated God like an enemy. Hostility as well because the wrath of God was abiding on us. And then Christ comes and, and his life is a sacrifice to satisfy the judgment of God. And when he lays his life down, he removes the barrier of sin between us and God. But in this passage, it has double meaning. Because the removing of sinful hostility here meant there'd be a removal of sinful hostility here as well. That's what it means in this passage. This passage is about racism as well as salvation. Both are included here. There was a court of the Gentiles in the temple. Some believe that this referred to the thick stone wall that existed where Jews could go in near to God, but Gentiles could not. But Christ came and tore down the wall so that whether Jew or Gentile, all have access to God. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Who are the two in this passage? Jews and Gentiles. That's who they are. And today, for us, in our location, it might be blacks and whites. But he creates one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. You know why races are hostile to one another? 
because of sinful cravings and desires. You're not like me. You might invalidate who I am. I need to compare myself to you. Am I better than you? This is all sinful hostility. That for a Christian is no longer supposed to characterize our lives. Right? Haven't we been set free from sin? So no matter what past you grew up in, no matter what your mom and them were like, no matter what you were raised around, no matter how far it goes back in you personally, but now, no longer true. We've all been made one man in Christ. And that's a bigger truth than anything else I bring to the table. Listen to this, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right? When you look at the he, this is the emphasis on the work of Christ. What Christ did in coming and taking on the form of a man and doing what he did on the cross and shedding his blood and taking upon himself the just judgment of God against our sin. He himself is our peace. He made us one and broke down any division. He created one new man. He reconciled us both to God. He preached peace. He gave us both access to the Father by the Spirit. He did all these things. Christ has done all that in a context that tears down the divisions between men. So then, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're not goyim. You're part of the family as much as anybody is part of the family. You are part of the family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Built together. This isn't an individual passage. This is a corporate passage. So together, we are a dwelling place of the Spirit. I put this in your outline. To fail to live this is to proclaim the work of Christ ineffective. Because the basis for you and I being able to do this one another in this passage is he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. So then, therefore, your life can now take on these proportions. Our lives declare the result of the work of Christ. How we live in these categories, it says something about the work of Christ. You've got racial tensions We have issues whether we forgive one another based on race. We have issues of whether or not we pursue one another, whether we're eager towards one another based on race. We have low opinions of one another based on race. All that says is what our natural history has given to us is greater than the spiritual history we have in Christ. That's what that says. It says the sins of humanity are greater than the work of Christ on the cross. Even what Christ did couldn't overcome that. That's what that says. And when there's only 7% of churches that have managed to figure out how to get different skin colors in the same chairs, that's what the church says. 
Listen, what the Bible says is we're to put to death what is earthly. Put these things to death. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. I want you to see here, because I'm about to get into a racial statement here. This is not just, well, this is how Christians treat each other. It is, but it's how Christians who are in the same church with racial tensions were called to treat each other. These words. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, here, body of Christ, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian. Barbarian was a name that the Romans and the Greeks created for people who spoke different languages because of the way they sounded. Now, bar, 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 bar. You can't understand a word. Bar, 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 bar. The guy's a barbarian. Why? Because he speaks a different language than you. Yep, that's all it takes. That's all it takes for my pride to make me superior to you. I can't understand your language, therefore you're stupid. Barbarians. <laughs> Scythian. There's no longer Scythian. There's no longer slave. There's no longer free. But Christ is all. And he's in all. Listen, you hate somebody with a different skin color. You're hating the Christ who's in them. It comes in the package. give you this last quote from John Piper. In the church, we are proclaiming the excellencies of him through the racial diversity of the unified church. We're proclaiming the excellency of God and that the basis of our relationship has been found outside of these natural limitations in a supernatural world given to us. John Piper says, that is what God is aiming at in our salvation, a new people that is so free from enmity and so united in truth and peace that God himself is there for our joy and for his glory forever. Think on this. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart toward all other persons who are in Christ by faith. Whatever the race. If we want the meaning and the worth and the beauty and the power of the cross of Christ to be seen, proclaimed from us, and loved in our churches, and if the design of the death of his son is not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile alienated ethnic groups to each other in Christ, then will we not display and magnify the cross of Christ better by more and deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and unity in our worship and life. Listen, what a statement the church makes when we are unified together amidst our diversity. What a statement we scream to the world. Now, the Bible calls on us to do this, to be eager in this category, not to be tolerant, not to just be okay with racial unity, to be eager, eager for that unity. Now, I wrote something out, and I want to direct these comments to all the people of color that are in this auditorium today. That's an awkward thing to do, huh? Single out those of you that have distinction of color. But I want to single you out for this purpose. 
you're choosing to be here and to worship here screams something from your life. Because most of us who are here that are white, we don't have any idea what it's like to do what you did in coming to this church. Because we've never been to a church where almost everybody else is black. We have no idea what it felt like to walk in here on the first day and wonder, what are these, what, what kind of reception am I going to get? I mean, from New Orleans, right? You don't know what you were getting into when you came here. And your life screams something. I, I, I want to say this to you. Your involvement screams that you see our dissimilar skin and ancestry as small and our common savior and our destiny as big. That you see that the eternal spiritual family we've all been born into by the Spirit is more significant than the temporary physical family we were born into. That the cause of the gospel we inherited from Christ is more important than the cause of our ancestors or personal culture in this natural world. That's what your presence here screams. And I want to highlight and thank you and focus this last thought on that passage in Ephesians 4, verse 3. That's what eagerness in unity looks like. Way out of your comfort zone, but you see something bigger. And so thank you for helping us to see that more clearly. Now we're going to do two things here. We're going to take communion in a moment. I thought it was very appropriate that this morning would be a morning that we would celebrate communion. Communion, that word that has commonness in it. That we celebrate the same Savior in communion, regardless of our background. But before we get to that, perhaps you need to do some hard adjustments between you and God this morning. And I'm going to give us a moment to do that. It could very easily be that your background has afforded you issues in your heart, sinful hostilities in your heart towards another race. And it is displeasing to God. And he would want repentance and brokenness to take place in our hearts and in our lives. So that an amazing thing could take place as only Christ could allow in this room, in this room. Wouldn't it be amazed given our history? In this room, there are people whose relatives were slave owners in this room. And there are people in this room whose relatives were slaves. And we stand together and worship God passionately to bring glory to Him. That's an amazing thing. bow our heads together. Lord, I, I pray for your grace for us this morning. Lord, in this room, there could be a variety of sinful responses that remain in our hearts. Prideful judgments, disdaining of others, unforgiveness, prejudice and bias against others. 
Lord, you know the condition of our hearts. God, I pray right now you are making real to us. Where is my heart towards those of another race? How affected am I in answering this great call to walk in a manner worthy? That you, oh God, have called us with all of our different backgrounds and cultures and racial diversity. You have called us to one body, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one God and Father of us all who is in us all. And you have wanted us to be eager to put on display Only God can do that. Lord, where we have failed to proclaim your excellency in this regard, Lord, be merciful to us. Correct us. Adjust us. I want you to continue just to let the Holy Spirit guide you into your own heart. I'm going to ask the Guys who are helping out with communion, if they would come on up, and we're going to begin to pass out communion. I, I think in a moment like this, communion becomes a little more clear, doesn't it? Communion, it's the word having in common. What also becomes more clear is this. We make a statement by our communion that we are in common. I think it's appropriate where we are refusing to be in common with others that we not take communion. Where there is sin prevalent, controlling us that we will not repent and respond to, what we are about to do in taking communion, we make a mockery of it. We celebrate the person and work of Christ who set us free from sin. If we are unwilling to embrace being free from sin, then we are not truly celebrating this morning. And I would advise you, don't take communion. If you're here this morning and and the poison of racism runs deep in your veins and you're having a hard time bringing that thing under the axe of the Spirit of God, I think that's serious enough for you not to take communion this morning because your life and attitude is proclaiming that you are not in common with those for whom Christ died. And until until that can be undone, and it needs to be undone, I think it needs to bother you because it's a statement against what we celebrate. It's making a contrary statement to the statement that this meal is making. Remember Jesus saying, how I've longed to eat this meal with you. Do you remember that? Can I fill in the subtitles? How I've longed, me, the God of glory and perfection, how I've longed to eat this meal with my enemies from the race of Adam. That's what he was saying. The fact that we have communion with God ought to blow our minds. And if we won't afford others communion with us, why don't you just back off today and let that bug you and forego the statement this meal makes because our lives aren't making that statement.
So we'd have folks go ahead and begin to be served. The ushers will lead you from your rows there and ask you to come forward. Let's pass out communion.